Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Well, today in the show, we're going to cover something a little bit different, Bermuda grass. But even if you don't have Bermuda grass in your operation, there are still a lot of things that are going to apply to you and all crops. So we hope you join us throughout the show today. If you've got any questions for us, you can email us, radio at agphd.com. We're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a minute here. But uh, before we do, I just wanted to let you know that we do have some upcoming Ag PhD workshops. So next week on Tuesday, February 15th, so a week from today, we've got a soybean agronomy workshop. And then on Wednesday, February 16th, we have a what we call naturals workshop where we'll talk about biologicals, plant growth hormones, just that, that whole realm of agriculture where there are some people out there that like to call these things snake oil, foo-foo dust, whatever you want to term it. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the big ag chemical companies that are around the world, they are pouring billions of dollars into the research and development of products in that spectrum because everybody's searching for what we would term a natural alternative rather than a synthetic pesticide alternative to controlling weeds, insects, and diseases and stimulating plant growth, making nutrients more available in the soil and in the plant. So there are just a lot of good things there, and we're going to talk about that at our Naturals Workshop. So if you want more information on the Soybean Agronomy Workshop or the Naturals Workshop, just go to agphd.com. I'll also let you know that uh, the week after that, It'd be, let's see here, i got to check the dates now. Uh, we have Neil Kinsey coming in to our Morton Center. That's right at the site of the Ag PhD Field Day. And it'd be February 22nd through the 24th. So that's a Tuesday through a Thursday that following week. So all of our workshops, like the Soybean Workshop and the Naturals Workshop, they're free. We'd love to have you join us for those. With Neil's event, it does cost a little bit of money, but it's very reasonable. He normally charges like $1,500 for a three-day training like that. And because we get so many people in and we've done a lot of work with Neil over the years, the cost is dramatically lower. It's around $200 a person. Plus, you get seven meals in the three days. So anyway, check that out. That information's also at agphd.com. And right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. Get this question in from Doug over in Illinois. He's going to be doing some spring strip till. And Doug asked, do you think we could apply our Zyway fungicide and possibly our insecticide with our spring strip till pass? Well, I don't believe that either of those things is labeled. The concern gets to be how far away from the seed is it. So you want to keep a, a product like Zyway fungicide or an insecticide close to where the seed is. You don't want it on the seed, but you want it near the seed and certainly in that root zone. So could it work? Yeah, there's certainly potential that it could work because when you stop and think about it, the application probably isn't going to be all that much different. You're putting a stream of insecticide and fungicide out in the field relatively near where the seed is. But I would just say in order to make it work better, you got to keep it closer. And I will tell you, if you choose to do that, there's no company I don't think that's going to stand behind that because it's not technically labeled. I don't believe. I don't think I've... I've 
thoroughly scoured each of the labels to make sure that I'm telling you uh, the, the, the right fact. You can look the label up yourself, but I just know that typically these products are labeled for infro use and sometimes two by two. All right. Thanks for the question, Doug. I got this one from Scott down in Australia, and he said, I'm trying to build my potassium levels in my soil. Here's a couple quick numbers for you guys. My CEC is between 28 and 35. My pH is ideal, right around 6.7. So over two years, I have put on 160 pounds of muriate of potash and 160 pounds of sulfate of potash per acre. I've lifted my base saturation from 1.5 to 2.2%. Now, with fertilizer prices being high, I'm looking at some different ways to get potassium out there. I've got some sweet corn. I put foliar potassium out there, a total of 85 pounds, some of the best sweet corn I've seen. I'm also uh, spraying weekly because I've got fall armyworm, and of course, we don't have GM or GMO corn here in Australia. Uh, so I'm just wondering, with my foliar apps and everything I'm doing, am I heading in the right direction? Will the foliar help build potassium in the soil once that residue is broken down? Just curious what you got to say. Any type of potassium that you put on is going to help build your K level in yeah, the anything, soil. Anything above but, what crop removal rates are. Yes, exactly, and that's where I was going to where I was going to go. So a lot of times when we start talking about foliar products, we got to stop. And think about, well, what are we actually putting on? Usually it's lower rates of lower concentrated products because we have to be really careful about crop safety. And so it's very common for people who are just doing foliar to not have anything to build. It's simply to feed the plant. The other thing that she said there was key in that email Yields are good. Okay, so if yields are going up, what does that mean? So that's great. I'm happy yields are going up. The only downside to that is now more fertilizer is used, so it takes even more to feed the crop, which then, of course, would mean it would take more to build the soil levels. So, yes, fertilizer is expensive, but you just have to at least stay in a little bit of a build program, and some year fertilizer will get cheap again. We've talked about it often here in the show, but about a year and a half ago, we bought up a crazy amount of fertilizer for our farm, took care of every last one of our fields that had low K, got them all way up into the super good range, and you'll have that opportunity again at some point too when fertilizer comes back down, hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, the other thing that, that Scott commented on, he said in one of his trials where he is just trying adding potassium on versus not adding additional potassium. He said the crop looks like it's now short in nitrogen where he's added the extra potassium. And yep. that makes sense to me, Scott, because yep. you look at uh, the, the staves on the barrel and now you got the potassium one up. So what's going to be the next one that's short? Yep. Well, potassium was what you're short in before. Now it's nitrogen. So now you got to step it up because you're going to get more yield. <laughs> right. Again, that's the, the one downside to the higher yield is it does take a little bit more fertilizer. We're going to be talking about Bermuda grass on today's program, but also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. 
During the Bronze Age, grain sorghum was a common crop in developing agriculture. Today's technology has changed virtually everything, but grain sorghum largely hasn't changed until now. Introducing Emiflex herbicide, paired with iGrowth non-GMO herbicide-resistant grain sorghum, this duo controls foxtail and other tough weeds pre- and post-emergence so you can grow like never before. Make history in your sorghum makers. Start today at sorghumpotential.com. Always read and follow label directions. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll give you the answers to that question at a free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. It's Tuesday, February 15th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep on topics such as pest control, resistance issues, herbicide traits, and more. If you want to make raising soybeans more lucrative and fun, you don't want to miss the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Weeds rob you of yield potential, so rob them of the chance to grow with powerful corn herbicide solutions from Corteva AgriScience. Weeds won't know what hit them, but you will. Because you can count on all the top corn herbicide products, including Resicor, SureStart 2, and Keystone NXT, to effectively control weeds, you can spend less time worrying about unwanted yield-robbing plants and power on. Learn more at poweroverweeds.com power. Keystone NXT is a restricted-use pesticide. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio talking about Bermuda grass, and you'll find much of today's discussion will really correlate with any type of grass that you're trying to grow. Yeah, there are some specific things about Bermuda grass, but when you're trying to raise grass, whether it's for hay, for pasture, for seed, whatever, there there are a lot of similarities and the way we're going to manage these things and just some of the extra things that people are doing to get better production are, are great points to be writing down and, and putting into your program. And again, if there's some new things that come up, we always encourage you, try them on a small scale, see how they work for you. Run the numbers, see what the return on investment is, and if you like it, like how it's working out, great. Uh, so we've always found intensively managing grass certainly helps us better tolerate some of the tough conditions out there, whether it's drought or excessive rain or, or whatnot. Let's get started down in Mississippi. we got Rocky Lemus with Mississippi State with us. Rocky, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, when we talk about Bermuda grass in your part of the world, what is the Bermuda grass used for? Is it grazed? Is it baled? What are guys doing? Well, you know, Bermuda grass is, is, is a native warm season, I mean, spring and warm season grass that we use quite a bit in the south. There are about 8, eight million acres planted around the, across the southeast, and they are both used for grazing and also for hay production. Um, when we're talking about Bermuda grass as a forage crop, we usually have two classifications. What we call the hybrid Bermuda grass that are established to uh, what we call uh, sprigs. Uh, usually they tend, tend to establish a little bit longer versus the seeded varieties of Bermuda grass. So the seeded Bermuda grasses are going to be more adaptable to uh, um Pasture conditions, grazing conditions, they tend to produce about 25% less yield compared to the hybrid Bermuda grasses that we utilize in the south. That's interesting. Yeah, the the hybrid effect is a huge deal, and I think a lot of growers understand that. Just thinking about corn, for example, but yeah, 25% less yield 
uh, if you don't go with the hybrid varieties, that's that's a big deal. Okay, so when growers are picking which varieties they're going to plant, what are they looking at? Are they looking at disease tolerance? Are they just looking at tonnage and, and production? Uh, what's the biggest factor? One of the biggest factors is there are two factors that we try to to look at. One is they are more concentrated in tonnage because they're trying to increase their hay production systems. Uh, I think one of the advantages with the hybrid meagrasses is that it takes longer to establish. Sometimes it might take, a, might take you a year out of production uh, by trying to establish hybrid meagrasses. And the other thing is the seeds resistance, especially in the south. Uh, army worms, the major problem for us in Bermuda grass, they tend to be very aggressive on those. But also we have a new pest called the step maggot. And it's actually a, a fly that lays the, uh, the eggs and the larvae on the top of the stem. And that larvae actually follow to uh, the top of the stand and uh, stop growth. So what happened is that when you have issues with stem maggot, you feel looks like it got hit by frost in the middle of the summer. So it, that becomes a problem. So looking at varieties that are more resistant to step maggot is something that we try to focus these days. Uh, this this seems to be the the toughest thing we've got. Well, one of the toughest things we've got going in ag now is this this insect that that's like your stem maggot in Bermuda grass. We see the same kind of things in wheat production. We're seeing it now in soybeans in the north, where we've got something that's going to get inside that stem. It's just tough to fight. So, are there varieties that are resistant to the stem maggot, or do you have to treat with insecticide at a very specific timing? How how do you manage through that? Well, well, there's some varieties that seems to be more uh, resistant to the stem maggot. Uh, University of Georgia has done some work on that. But one of the things they both approach is try to control the fly as much as they can. So what we usually tell producers, you know, most of the the, uh, the insecticide they use for army worm control tends to have some effective, effective effect and also on the stem maggot. Uh, so if you already have stem maggot and you, and you feel what we tell producers, go ahead and, and cut that field, cut your losses for that, cut of hay, and then come back and do a herbicide application within seven days of cutting that hay, and then repeat that uh, insecticide application again uh, 14 days after the, first, the the initial application to to try to control uh, the stem maggot. Something that's very important is to make sure that you following uh, any graze and hay restrictions that come with a specific insecticide that you try to use. Yeah, great tips there. Uh, we're talking with Rocky Lemus down at Mississippi State University. Rocky, always great stuff. Uh, the stem maggot issue is is a big deal. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, thank you so much for for helping us out with Bermuda grass today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, let's head over to Texas then. we got Lauren Mulder with us right now to talk a little fertility, perhaps. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. All right. So Rocky already scared us there with the stem maggot issue. So talk to us about uh, raising really good tonnage and, and just doing really well with, with Bermuda grass. Is there a fertility element here that really helps things? Absolutely. It as you guys have been preaching for a long time, soil testing and soil fertility are key to any good production and to maximize the production that your land's capable of producing. You know, I, I believe thoroughly that you don't want to spend a dollar on an input until you spend your money on a good soil test to know where you're at. And depending on the size of your field and the variance of the soils, you may need to run several soil tests to get a feel for where you need to be at from a fertility standpoint and especially in 
the current scenario we're in with fertilizer pricing at, if not record highs, really close to it in your area and everywhere else in the country. It's just unbelievable how expensive it has gotten. Yeah, there there's such an opportunity this year with, with prices of hay, prices of uh, crops just being really high, but we got to manage this fertility piece correctly. And I know when it comes to grass production, a lot of farmers we talk to say, well, I really got to manage nitrogen well, and I would say nitrogen is probably a given, but what are some of the other keys? I, I see sulfur being one that more growers are talking about, but are there some other things we should really be watching close? You know, depending on what your tests indicate, you're, we're going to go back to looking at, in my book, the cations and looking at our calcium-magnesium ratios. And honestly, Bermuda loves the luxury consumed potassium. And I know you guys are big proponents of getting your potassium levels up, and that'll certainly help your Bermuda grass and it'll increase your protein levels as well. Oh, awesome. Well, you know, when you think about protein levels, what, what do you normally see and how much variance are you going to see from, from one field to the next in, in a Bermuda grass crop? Honestly, it can be as the two big variables are what's the state of the soil, how deficient are they in certain nutrients, and then how good is the fertility program to shore that up. And Bermuda loves nitrogen. It's a grass and it'll luxury consume nitrogen all day long and you'll get a a nice, tall, and in some cases spindly, if it's not a balanced nutritional program, crop that you can cut and, and bail up. But, you know, the best forage is always going to be coming out of a balanced fertility program and ideally out of a balanced soil. So that if you've got the reservoirs there, it's going to take less inputs over the top. And at the end of the day, the grass still needs the P, the K, and the micronutrients to really reach its full potential. I'm glad you mentioned the micros, Lauren. We we do get a lot of calls and questions from growers down in Texas, and one of the comments we have, it seems like every year that it gets really hot and dry, which is quite often in Texas the way it sounds, that, that if, you get the, if you get the micronutrients right, the crop seems to handle it a lot longer and stay healthy. Is that your observation as well? I think that and and healthy levels of potassium. You know, potassium really helps the plant, and in particular grass, go much further when we get into our annual droughts. Uh, you know, it's just not a, it's not a question of if; it's just when is our next drought going to start? Because the rain's going to shut off at some point in the spring if we get our spring rains. And right now, most of the states in in a severe to excessive drought as it is. We didn't get our fall rains, and we're not getting winter rains by and large. So we're already running behind on the moisture, and spring hasn't even sprung. So hopefully, we'll get bailed out in April and May, but you know, that may not be the case. You never know what Mother Nature's got in store for us. Exactly. We're, we're kind of in the same boat here. We're, we're needing some moisture, but I, I'm preferring now where we're at in the north, we, we get moisture in the solid form of snow and ice this time of year. So I, I'm okay waiting a little bit till it's in the liquid form, but we're certainly going to need it for this next crop. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Good luck to you here this spring. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great day. Bet you as well talking about Bermuda grass production on today's Ag PhD radio program and we'll be right back after this. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity with fast payback, an expanded application window, makes life simple and it's the secure choice 
with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Farming is probably the most natural thing for a person to do. It taught me how to take pride in my work, how to put something ahead of myself, whether it was getting up early to feed the livestock or working late to bring in the harvest. Farming taught me to give it my best, no matter the job. My name is Tanner. I'm a farmer. I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market, making claims of improving soil health and plant development. But which products will work best on your farm? Well, that's why we're devoting a full day to our first ever Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Wednesday, February 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now... You can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking Bermuda grass on today's program. But also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And of course, you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. Let's head down to the University of Georgia. we got Glenn Harris with us right now to talk Bermuda grass. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. All right. So when we, we look at, at Bermuda grass, we were talking uh, earlier, there's there's something like 8 million acres in the, the south and southeast part of the country raising Bermuda grass. We get a lot of questions about it. What are some of the biggest challenges with Bermuda grass production in Georgia? <laughs> well, right now, and I'm a soils and fertilizer specialist. So um, as you probably know, fertilizer prices are pretty high right now. So that's the biggest thing. It's a huge part of their input. And uh, we're scrambling how to figure out how we can fertilize and make good yields with this Bermuda grass. And uh, in, in light of these 
uh, fertilizer prices right now. Well, I know the corn growers are certainly crying about a dollar a unit or more nitrogen. Uh, so I can only imagine when you're raising uh, the tonnage some of these guys are with Bermuda grass, what, what that expense is going to be like. So w- growers are probably asking you, what levels do I need in my soil or how much can I, can I get by with this year? I mean, all fun questions to try to try to answer. What do you tell guys about that? Yeah, well, right now, um, you know, probably the biggest message is that there really are no silver bullets. Um, uh, there are a lot of things out there that we can, you know, we're looking into, can, can maybe improve some efficiencies here and there. But, you know, bottom line, and I work cotton and corn and peanuts, especially uh, cotton and corn as well as Bermuda grass, you know, you gotta you got to have a certain level of NPK fertility. You're not going to make the yields you want. So, and, and, it, and it goes back to things um, – we we know we need to do we should be doing all the way all the time anyway soil testing uh liming where we need to be that kind of thing so it's it's really it's almost like a when 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 prices get like this is get back to the basics really when you think about bermuda grass production is there a certain type of soil that you're looking for or a certain type of soil condition that's going to be most conducive for bermuda, bermuda grass growth well um you know, and we got, we have, you said we had a, Bermuda, a lot of Bermuda in the South and Georgia, especially. I think we have cows in every county, except for maybe one of the metro Atlanta. And I think they keep a cow in that county just so we say we can have a cow in every county. Um, but, uh, you know, our, 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 overall, our soils in the Southeast coastal plain are pretty sandy, so they're well drained. And uh, luckily, we usually get a decent amount of, of rainfall during the year. So, um, you know, soil type, we got we to gotta go with what, you know, work with what we got. And uh, that's what we we pretty much have. And, and of course, South Georgia's Coast Plain and, and North Georgia's Piedmont. And um, but but still, overall, they're ultisols and uh, they're they're highly weathered and that kind of thing. So you know, they take they take some management. So probably not the best soils in the world, but with some management, we can we can make some pretty good crops. You mentioned liming before. How big a deal is that? What kind of yield impact do you have when you've got pH that dips down into the fours or low fives? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a no no for most crops. We, uh, you know, we're target six point oh on almost all of our crops, including Bermuda grass, and uh, we get the, the below five point five aluminum comes available, and and again, our soils are, are low organic matter, low CEC, poorly buffered in the southeast, so. Uh, it's really critical, and it doesn't take as much lime to bring the pH up, but then it doesn't take as much nitrogen fertilizer to take them back down. So, uh, unlike in the Midwest, we 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 you know encourage and a lot of our folks soil sample every year. Um, two things that are going to drop on us the most are, are things like pH and also potassium. You mentioned that as the as the nitrogen moves through that light sandy soil, you you can certainly lose calcium and end up right back in the same boat with a low pH. How do how do growers do that with Bermuda grass? Are they spoon feeding after each cutting or or every month or or how how is nitrogen managed? That, yeah, nitrogen. We we basically are shooting for four cuttings a year and basically a hundred pounds of nitrogen per cutting. And, uh, and we split that. So you're supposed to put on each of that hundred per cutting. Um, now phosphorus, we can put all on at planting, liming, we can lime, you know, pretty much once a year or where, whenever we need it. Um, but we, we are kind of spoon feeding nitrogen per cutting. And then potash is the other big one. Uh, we really don't, we like to split that at least twice. So some in the spring and then the, and then the second, the second shot in, in, 
usually after the second cutting. Now, sulfur is another one that gets talked about a lot, and I know a lot of growers like to put that on the same time they're putting on the N and, and spoon feed it multiple times. What do you see with sulfur? Do you see guys increasing the, the amount of pounds of sulfur that they're using or just the amount of applications they're making? Uh, probably not so much on Bermuda grass um, compared to things like, like corn and cotton. But, uh, yeah, sulfur is an interesting one because we're not getting it from the atmosphere as much as we used to or not getting in other fertilizers and again on our sandy soils in the southeast it's as leachable as nitrogen so uh, we commonly use um, nitrogen sources that have sulfur in them and and nice thing they're pretty balanced so you know we have liquids that are like 28 percent nitrogen and and um, and five percent sulfur so it's kind of a good balance and as long as they use a material like that it usually stays in check and we're usually all right yeah, there's a lot to manage when it comes to fertility, and when it's not cheap, uh, <laughs> there's some tough conversations. We're talking with Glenn Harris here down at the University of Georgia. Glenn, thank you so much. Really appreciate what you're doing down there, and, and thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, you're welcome. Call anytime. Brian, the fertility piece here, our last couple of guests have, have been talking about this. And when we think about grass and forage production, we, we often see soils really not built up enough or, or just drawn down over the years as, well, like Glenn was saying, they're taking four cuttings a year. You're taking a lot of fertility off that ground. You really got to fertilize. Yep, you do. It's just that most people don't treat pasture ground or just grass in general like a crop. But... It's just as much a crop as corn or soybeans or wheat. The more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. So hopefully over time that mentality starts to change. But I will say it's a little bit more challenging when you start talking about perennial crops. I mean, with corn and soybeans or wheat, for example, they're all annual crops. It's really pretty easy. Each year we get another opportunity to fertilize. We get another opportunity to place fertility down deep in the ground if we choose to. And we get to start fresh each year. You don't have that luxury with these perennial crops. And when we start talking about some of the nutrients that don't move well in soil, like phosphorus, zinc, and copper, in heavy soils, it's really difficult to get those nutrients down into the root zone where we would really like them to be. When it's something that's leachable, like nitrate, sulfate, boron, no big deal. You could literally put some on every month if you wanted to, and you would continue to feed the crop well. So this is also why when we start talking about perennial crops like alfalfa that you are only going to have out there for three to five years most of the time, you have that one shot. Well, we'd really encourage you, if you've got heavy soil and some of these immobile soil nutrients that are low, again, like phosphorus, copper, zinc, put them down. And even in our region, potassium is a good one to put down at a, at a good, strong rate. Think about how much you're going to take out of that soil over the life of the stand. And I know that spending a bunch of money on fertility up front it's kind of hard to do, especially when you invest all the money in seeding the alfalfa. Just buying the seed, it's expensive. I get all that. But what we're trying to talk about here is how do we make the most total money over the life of the stand? So you just have to think about perennial crops a little bit differently than you do annual crops. It's the same kind of discussion we have like how when we were doing conventional till and we switched a bunch of our acres over to no-till we, we that was the literally the only thing we changed. We left all other management practices the same and we found out yeah you can't do that you have to farm differently when you have different 
Tillage practices, just like how you have to farm differently when you have perennial crops versus annual crops. So anyway, there are a lot of things that you can look at with Bermuda grass or, quite frankly, all grasses. If you have pasture ground, any type of grass, start thinking about it like a crop. Start taking soil tests. Start taking a look at could you do some drain? Do you need to improve drainage out there? What else do you need to do for fertility? How about controlling the weeds and getting them under control early? Maybe even looking at diseases and insects and everything else. The better managed that that grass is, the more total tons you're going, going to be able to pull off over time and hopefully the more money you're going to make in your operation. We're going to get back to the Ag PhD mailbag, taking your questions right after this. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low-use rate Authority Supreme herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. This is a wake-up call for you and your field's microbiome from Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary foliar-applied biochemistry that doesn't rely on bulky nutrients or finicky biologicals to wake up your soil and unlock more nutrients per acre, all with a low use rate. It's like caffeine for microbes. Source works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. So if you're a grower, go to sound.ag and learn more. And if you're a microbe, time to rise and shine. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll give you the answers to that question at a free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. It's Tuesday, February 15th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep on topics such as pest control, resistance issues, herbicide traits, and more. If you want to make raising soybeans more lucrative and fun, you don't want to miss the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people, and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions.
You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio, talking about Bermuda grass. And you notice how the conversation got into some of these key fertility things with uh, Lauren Mulder that was on. Uh, he's a consultant down in the state of Texas. And Lauren had made a comment. I think he misspoke. He, he said uh, calcium to magnesium ratio. And so Lauren followed up with an email. He goes, oh, man, I think I said ratio. I meant percentages. Uh, I, I said, no problem. We'll, uh, we'll correct that. And Lauren works with Neil Kinsey. Neil often talks about the percentage that you want to have in the soil and the base saturation percentage of calcium and magnesium and how if you get those things balanced right, you get the right air movement through the soil, you get the right porosity in that soil uh, for for really for everything to, to work a little bit better. And they've had great luck getting that calcium somewhere in the 60s and magnesium somewhere in the teens. Uh, depends on what soil type you've got exactly, and whether it's Bermuda grass or or corn or cotton or soybeans or whatever, it's it's the same thing. So that is a big deal. And also, uh, just made the comment about getting that potassium balance right, which we often talk about: four to eight percent base saturation K with a, a good amount of parts per million too. In some of these lighter soils, you may have to be a little bit higher on the base saturation percentage to start the year off, but. Uh, one thing that Glenn Harris from Georgia had made a comment of, too, with the potassium, they're having to split that application because they are getting potassium to move in some of those light soils with lots of rainfall that they get in that part of the world more times than not. So that's something a little bit different than for our guys up north that have heavy soils and don't get all that rainfall. They can put potassium out all in one shot and be just fine. All right, Brian, had a number of questions come in uh, in the Ag PhD mailbag here. This one came in from from RTP and let's see here's the soil test results from Michigan State so I'm guessing uh, we're based out of Michigan here uh, just wondering if I work on getting my phosphorus level up because it's really low yep. will that will that naturally bring the high magnesium level down over time I'm thinking that if I get phosphorus up maybe the mag will be more available to the plants and and naturally come down and then also I'm I using count on a, that Using a nine twenty three thirty mix, wondering, uh, do you recommend that I lay that down in a single application in the spring or in the fall? Okay, so we got a ten CEC here in the state of Michigan. Yeah, so if it but, was about five percent organic matter, I don't know if I've ever seen a five percent organic matter in a ten CEC. Yeah, let's put it this way. We don't know that we necessarily can give you a firm answer here because we're not really familiar with the lab. And I realize, oh, we're definitely familiar with Michigan State University if this actually is a Michigan State University test. Uh, I get that. But we run all our tests through Midwest Labs. We've worked with a lot of other labs around the country haven't seen a lot of data coming out of Michigan State, so I don't know as far as the conversions to any of the other labs or exactly how they do their testing, but I agree with Darren. 5.4% uh, organic matter, the odds that if this went through Midwest Labs or some of the other labs we're familiar with around here, that it would be more than a 10.7 CEC. I'd be shocked if it's not more. So I don't know that I can give you a great answer, but I will say this. you got to build your phosphorus up, and it's not going to have much impact on your magnesium. But your magnesium isn't terrible. So you have 1,466 parts per million of calcium, 372 parts per million of magnesium. That magnesium percent is not bad. 
what is problematic here is your magnesium to potassium ratio. So if you do a base saturation test, what you'll find is your potassium level most likely is going to be too low compared to everything else. It's going to be below 4%, I can almost guarantee you. But again, I just, I don't see how this could possibly be a 10.7 CEC with that much calcium and that much magnesium in the soil, but whatever. Anyway, the point is I'd be building potassium some as well, and I'd definitely be building up that phosphorus, and over time things are going to turn out better. But what we typically see is with the magnesium to potassium ratio, one to one or two to one is where the best yields are coming from. You're over three to one. So I'm just trying to say you got to bump that potassium up in relation to the magnesium, and then that's going to help things a lot as well. Oh, and in, in if this was truly a 10 CEC, which neither Darren or nor I believe this is, but if it was truly a 10 CEC field and you have lots of rainfall, you're, you're kind of borderline there in Michigan. I'd just say you could certainly put on some potassium in season, but... Anyway, we, we'd really like to see a soil test from a different lab. And we'd like to see more than just these few nutrients. We want to see micronutrients. We want to see the base saturation test. We want to see sodium. We want to see everything. And then we'll have a better idea where you should best invest your dollars. But we do know, yeah, we agree with you. Your phosphorus at six parts per million, that's not going to cut it. All right. Uh, I had a comment about tillage. Uh, back to a moldboard plow comment that was made. Uh, True Blue says, about 10 years ago, we tilled up 10 acres just to, to prove that ripping deep didn't work. However, we had a 10 bushel increase in yield. Uh, also, one comment yep. you guys say one of your negatives is the increased mineralization of organic matter, yeah. long-term anyway. Right. But I'm wondering, with the newer corn heads and vertical tillage tools, are they helping to build those levels back up faster? No. Or is this something totally different? Yep, oh. something totally different. And then somebody else commented on his comment and said, just wondering if your 10 bushel gain covered your tillage passes, because it probably took two or three passes to make a good seed bed. Well, at today, yeah. 10 bushels times $6 corn is 60 bucks. I think you could run across the field a couple times for 60 bucks. Yeah. So... There, there's a lot to talk about there. We, we've spent enough time, I think, talking about plowing. There are advantages, there are disadvantages. Yeah, I think the and, big thing, too, is the organic matter versus the organic material right. discussion. That organic material is all that residue that the combine left in the field or that the reduced tillage left above ground in the field. Now it's a matter of turning that over time as it decomposes into organic matter. Okay. Yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, where he's going with this is—is is that it, all this new stuff? Is that helping? No, it, it's not making any difference. It's not going to make any difference because it's all still organic material there. It's eventually going to decompose and become organic matter in the ground, hopefully. But where most of soil organic matter comes from is when plant roots break down. Remember that roughly half of all your organic material is in the roots below ground as big as your root mat or as big as your mass is above ground that's about how big your mass is below ground and that's where a lot of the organic matter comes from is the below ground stuff the above ground stuff a lot of that is just to help protect the soil more than anything sure some can become organic matter but some blows away some just flat out decomposes and uh, and it doesn't end up down in the soil as organic matter but anyway I, I, I guess 
nothing has really changed. If you do massive tillage and you make the ground super black, in effect, you break it down quickly, then you're also introducing a lot of oxygen to the soil. You're burning up your soil's organic matter faster. So none of that stuff is helping. But I would say the higher the yield you have, the more tillage you can do and the less chance then you have to destroy your soil's organic matter and lower it. You could maybe even stay steady with some on soil organic matter levels with some tillage. So anyway, again, lots we could talk about there. All right. Uh, get this comment in from Jenna up in Manitoba. You guys were talking about fungicide use in soybeans and which ones could lead to more green stems and which ones would not. I'm just, I got a couple of questions since soybeans are relative, relatively new to my area in Manitoba. Uh, do you think we should use some fungicides up here? Do you think it would help us? And also, what would you think about using fungicides in flax? That's something else we haven't tried. Uh, yes and yes. I, I'm I'm all for trying things. That's how we ended up doing this in soybeans because we started doing some headline, I think it was 2006, and then we did more in 2007, a lot more in 2007. And in 2007, we had one field where the gain was 17 bushels. It was side by side. We basically treated the whole field, left a, a pass untreated, and it was, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe. Now, normally, you're not going to gain that. But you only have to hit the home run one time, and you paid for about 10 years' worth of fungicide. Anyway, yes, I do think in Manitoba it'd be worthwhile. A lot of people don't like the green stems. Personally, I don't care. Like in Manitoba, you're going to freeze anyway at some point. That's going to eliminate the green stem issue. You can harvest after that with no problem. Otherwise, even if you have green stems, just go a little bit slower with the combine. It's not the end of the world. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. What's new from New Farm? Longbow EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical? Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available for fall. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long inside-out foliar disease protection. A single at-plant application provides comparable performance in corn yield protection to that of VT to R1 foliar fungicides against diseases like gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or zyway.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Beat resistant weeds with Tough IVC on your team. Add Tough IVC into your post-emergent tank mix and even the playing field. Tough IVC, a selective contact herbicide, synergizes HPBD inhibitors and enhances the effect of PS2 herbicides. Tough IVC increases control of some of the toughest to kill herbicide resistant weeds, such as Palmer Amaranth and Waterhem. Ask your local retailer about Tough IVC or visit BelchamUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market, making claims of improving soil health and plant development. But which products will work best on your farm? Well, that's why we're devoting a full day to our first ever Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Wednesday, February 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. 
Soybean growers are dealing a swift blow to tough broad leaves and grasses with the two-in-one power of Moccasin MTZ. Moccasin MTZ combines the power of s metolachlor and a higher load of Metribuzin for outstanding weed control right from the outset with extended residual control to keep tough weeds down, including pigweed, water hemp, ragweed, and mare's tail. In addition to annual grasses like foxtail and barnyard grass, ask your retailer about Moccasin MTZ and always read and follow label directions. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. And you know, it wouldn't be an Ag PhD Radio show, Brian, if we didn't have some soil tests to look at. These ones came in for Ben and uh, Ben in the 612. Uh, ben says, I wasn't able to make your soils clinic, uh, but I did catch the, the live stream. I'm a new farmer and I'm about an hour west of where you guys are at. Uh, my wife and I plan on farming this ground for the next 30 years, just trying to find a starting point to get things working in the right direction. I'm really stumped by my sodium levels. This land has been farmed profitably for generations, and I have nine different soil tests from different pieces of ground. They're all showing extremely high sodium. Magnesium is also on the high side, and zinc and boron are both low. So I'm just well, wondering if well, you'd give well. me an opinion. Okay, who whose tests are these? What lab? No idea. There's no possible chance that you got 50% sodium. That's literally what this says here. 50% sodium. There's, there's no way. You wouldn't be able to grow one thing. There's nothing that would grow. Okay, you so you sodium. said you took, so I'm nine, saying that there you were, took nine soil tests here, Ben. You could send nine soil tests, and I don't care what oh, lab wait, you I only use, have five. But I, I, would, I would pull tests. I would send them to Midwest Labs, and I would take the... Uh, complete Malik analysis. I think it costs somewhere around eleven fifty or something. So you'll spend a hundred dollars, and you'll get great data. Uh, pull those tests. You can pull them in the frozen ground if you want, or you can wait till things thaw out here. Yeah, because this then, this then isn't send them right. back to us. We we'd love to take a look at them. Yeah, this isn't right. You got a sixty six CEC. Uh, there, I'm just I'm going to give you the results from one of these sixty six CEC and fifty percent sodium. And if it's been raising crops profitably, there's not a there's not a chance in the world that's true. That data is incorrect. So yeah, if you can get us some good data, we'd be more than happy to help you. Okay, uh, more soil tests here. This comes in from Ben in Renville County, Minnesota. Ben said, "I got a 60 acre field that I pulled four acre grids on." Okay, so there's two sheets there. Some of the data is on each one, just the way it got printed. Um, he said, so I'm a young farmer here, got some tests from this fall, and I know listening to your shows, I've got low nutrients there, especially phosphorus, lots of two parts per million. But I wonder what your first move would be. Uh, pH is also pretty high, and I know that you often talk about lowering pH with tile, and in this case, the whole field needs pattern tile. Last year we had soybeans out there. I'm going to try and raise 220 bushel corn this year. So what's the, what's the question? 
what would be your first steps here? He's trying to raise 220 bushel corn. Young Own farm. the ground or rent the ground? Uh, it doesn't say if it's owned or rented ground. Okay, so let's approach it this way, Ben. If we're renting the ground, obviously you're not going to pay for that tile, but you're going to start the conversations with the landlord. Yes. That we desperately need tile out exactly. here. Uh, you can. How would you go about that, Brian? It, you'd, I mean, obviously you'd say, gosh, it would be wonderful if you would pay for all this tile, Mr. Landlord, but why would they want to do it? Because their ground's worth more, and then you're willing to pay them more rent. So it, it works quite well when you say, hey, I'd like to give you more money. People usually sign up for that, especially when you say, okay, you can make your ground worth more and I'll pay you more money to farm your ground. And they go, oh, okay, well, I'm interested in that. Yes, um, that that's my first choice. I mean, the other choice is you spend the money on the tile, but then if you're going to do that, you better sign a long-term lease so you get that money back out. So anyway, I'd definitely be having the conversation with the landlord. Otherwise, I would invest money in tile. Now, while we talk about the pH thing, remember that pH is just the result of the nutrient balance that you have in your soil. So when the pH is off, and it's not terrible, you only have an average of 7.4 pH. So that is not bad. Uh, but anyway, if you just correct some of these nutrients, you're going to find that over time, things are going to be fine. So just get those phosphorus levels up. Work on getting the potassium levels up over time. I mean, potassium, it costs a lot of money to raise the, the pH or to raise the percent base saturation K to where you need it to be, but you just, you got to do it in time. And I mean, you're low on sulfur, you're low on uh, zinc, you're low on copper. So there are a lot of things that can be addressed. So I just say, all right, what do you have for a budget? What can you work with here? And then I would start investing a little bit in the micronutrients and a lot in the P and the K. So that that's how I'd start. Oh, and there is one spot, and I don't know if the data is wrong, but there's one spot where it says there are 1,810 parts per million of sulfur. If that's true, then what that's telling us is we have a massive drainage problem in that spot. So in anywhere where your sulfur levels are over 100, then and there are only three spots in total, that's where you desperately need drainage. Because now we know for a fact, we got the data right there to show us, ooh, this stuff that's normally leachable, it's not moving. So we got to do something there. So that's... If I said, okay, I can't, let, let's say that you own the ground and you go, man, I can't, I can't spend all that money on pattern tile this year, but I can spend some. Okay. So I would start and I'd just put together a plan and I'd say, all right, we're going to get a main in and we're going to put a few laterals in this spot and that's it. And then the next year we do a few more and the next year we do a few more and go from there. All right. Thanks a lot for the questions, Ben. And, and yeah, if there's anything else we can do, please please follow up with us. Yeah, it's so challenging, though. I, I mean, we've talked about this on the show. When Darren and I first got started, this is 30 years ago, we didn't have any money either. And so you do a little bit, and it's like, okay, we're going to work on this, and we're going to do a little bit here and a little bit there. And now, after 30 years, where we've kind of got things built up and we have more equity, 
I mean, when 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 we buy ground now, it's like, all right, all in one shot. We're doing dirt work. We are putting tile in, and I'm literally going to build up every single nutrient to the level that it needs to truly be at in my field to maximize yield. And it's just bam right off the bat. And yeah, I mean, it might be a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars an acre, and you might say, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Well, we look at that as a long-term investment. Tile's a long-term investment, and to me. Fertility is a long-term investment as well when it is something like P and K that, quite frankly, in your soils where you get 30 CEC, it's never going to leave your field until the crop, or unfortunately the weeds, use it up. All right, got uh, this from N.A. who said, guys, can you make a video on potassium-solubilizing bacteria? That can be of great use if you've got hard soil uh, where your K never leaches out, then this product can be a great deal getting that K available for your crop. Hey, thanks, N.A. Really appreciate that that comment. And we are going to be talking about naturals next week, Brian. Well, yeah, but there's nothing that's going to take rock in your soil and break it down very quickly. Hard so you, soil. You didn't say rock. You just said hard soil. Hard soil where no, K never leaches no, out. No, that wasn't the thing. Say it again. You said potassium solubilizing. Potassium, most potassium in the soils in the form of feldspars. Those are rocks. So what I'm saying is we don't have anything today that's going to break rock down real quickly. So we would create this video for you if there was a if there was such a product that would help dramatically. Now, sure, there are some of these naturals, biologicals that can help you a little bit. So that could that could help get you one percent of the way, five percent of the way, whatever. But it's not going to be the answer. So now, if we're talking about hard soil, to Darren's point, that has a lot more to do with everything else in the soil. So, for example. There was a soil test just a little bit ago where it was supposedly 50% sodium, which I know it wasn't. It might have been 5% realistically when it gets to a good lab. But, I mean, when you have high sodium levels and high magnesium levels, okay, now I understand why your soil is getting hard. Let's get more calcium out there. Let's get a good balance of nutrients out there. And let's also get some something growing in that soil so we have a healthier soil, we have more microbial life, and over time that soil can be softer. And now the roots can penetrate better and everything else. So yes, I read that or I heard that question, Darren, as he wants to break down potassium that's already sitting in the soil, because a lot of these universities, like when I was in college, they said, Oh, you don't need to ever fertilize with K because there's all kinds of potassium in the soil. Well that's true. But what they failed to tell me is it's in the form of a rock. So since rock doesn't break down super quick we have to fertilize with lots of potassium every single year to raise amazing crops. But, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he's just saying, oh, we got hard, compacted soil. Well, get some more calcium out there, improve the drainage, and hopefully things will solve themselves in just a few years. One other fertilizer question from question from Michael. He said, my soil pH is all right, but can I still use 50 to 60 pounds of elemental sulfur in the fall sure. to supply sulfur for my crop? Absolutely. Elemental sulfur breaks down slowly and using a tiny little bit like that is no big deal. It's not like going to change your pH dramatically. You need hundreds of pounds before you even start talking about the pH change. Thanks for that question. We really appreciate that, Michael. And thanks to you for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.